Easter is the single most important day that has ever happened. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And I think it would be appropriate for us as a church just to take a few moments to make sure, just like in our family, we don't want to see our kids drift into thinking that it's really something else. But maybe we would just once again uh, align ourselves and make sure that we, we understood, understand what it is that took place 2,000 years ago. So for that reason... I've asked you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Now, here at Calvary, typically what we do on a Sunday morning is we'll do a Bible study and we'll take a book of the Bible, we'll start in the beginning and we'll read through and we'll explain and study as we travel through. So we have been going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. Last week we were in Acts chapter 4. And uh, the reason that it's called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles is that it covers a timeline from the time that Jesus goes back to heaven for the next 35 years, the key events of everything that took place. There's something that God wants to communicate to us. And one of the things that we've been saying is that the book of Acts conveys the history and the theology of the early church. That is what God felt was most important for us to know. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 10, and uh, the way that we're going to do this, typically we'll go through all the details. This is going to be a very abbreviated study. We're going to highlight a couple of things. There's going to be a lot that we don't talk about, but we'll talk about it when we come to Acts chapter 10 in our normal Sunday morning service. So this is going to be a great story. You're going to love it, but just to give a little bit of perspective, if you have your outline, you'll notice at the very top of it, it'll say Acts chapters 1 and 2, and then there's a space there. I want you to write 30 AD in that little space, and the reason for that is it's commonly held that that takes place in the year 30 AD. That's the year that Jesus dies on the cross, that's the year that uh, he ascends back to heaven, that's the year that the Holy Spirit is given. So you have Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. But by the time we come to Acts chapter 10, what we find is about 10 years have gone by. So this is going to take place in in, uh, AD 40. So you want to write that down, or 40 AD. Now, as, uh, and that'll be important for our study today. And also what we've found as we've been traveling through this book of Acts, we've noticed that there are certain themes that are woven through. And one of the themes that we've been seeing time and time again, and we looked at it last week in, in uh, the chapter four, and I put the verse there in your outline, Peter's giving a sermon and Peter says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And uh, one of the things that we discovered and we've seen certainly time and time again is that Jesus taught uh, that, that he was the only way. He, he believed that he needed to die on the cross for our sins, for us to be saved. And he would make statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, later on, the apostles, they would carry that message and they would say, there is no other name. That You have to come to that place where you know Jesus personally in order to, to have that relationship with God and ultimately go, and, uh, go to heaven and, and be with him for all eternity. Certainly here now, but then in eternity. So the question that I want to begin with today is, how important is that, that Jesus is the only way? Well, to, to begin that, there's going to be a great story that we're going to discover today. And, and again, we're going to take the abbreviated version. But anytime you come to a story in the Bible, the, the first thing you have to know is that God never says, I need to put some, something in this little space here. I need to add a couple of pages, a few verses. Let's just tell a story. 
Each story is there by design. There's something that God wants to communicate. And so in this short little story today, we're going to see something that God wants to communicate. So to do this, um, I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 10, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. But before we do that, I want you to go one verse back to verse 43 of chapter 9. And here's what it says. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And that'll be important. He's in Joppa. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, and he was called of the that of what was called the Italian cohort. So you have Peter in Joppa, and you have this Cornelius, and he's in Caesarea. Now uh, it's also important to note that when the Bible was written, it was not written with chapters and verses put in there. That was a thousand years later. So I could say turn to chapter 10 and we'd all turn to the same place. But it wasn't written that way originally. So chapter 9 and 10 are connected. Somebody put that in about a thousand years later. So just to give a little bit of perspective as to what's going on here, and remember that this is 10 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead, goes back to heaven. So if we put a map up there on the screen, one of the things that we find in the, uh, the map of Israel, now what you also need to know about Israel, Israel, the entire country, is about the size of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. That's, it's a very, very small country in, in the world. But if you were to look at a map of Israel, if you look at the top, you have that area called Galilee. That's in the top. And of course, there's the Sea of Galilee, and that's a large freshwater lake. And that's where Jesus was from, and that's where his ministry was at primarily. That's where James and John and the guys, uh, they, they were up in the northern part. If you go down to the bottom part of Israel, you have this area called Judea, and that's the southern part of Israel. And there in that southern part of Israel, there's the city of Jerusalem. And uh, certainly we read about that, and uh, that's been taking place in the the book of Acts. We've been talking about what was going on there. But what most people are surprised to find is that in the middle of the country, there is this area that's known as Samaria. And uh, Samaria was filled with the people that we would know as the Samaritans. And they were, they were, uh, the Jewish people were very prejudiced against the Samaritans, so much so that the Jewish people would never go through Samaria if they were going to the north or the southern part of Israel. They'd go around because, you know, hope they don't touch or come in contact with the Samaritan. Well, the reason that's important is this is 10 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And there in Jerusalem, there is persecution now that's coming upon the church. And some people have even died because of the persecution. So what's taken place is that many people who are in the church in Jerusalem have now fled for their lives. And uh, the safest place that they can think to go is the area of Samaria, because they know that the good Jewish leadership would never go to Samaria because they don't want to come in contact with the Samaritans. Does that make sense? So here you have Peter, he's left Jerusalem, he goes up to this town of Joppa, which is just around the the outskirts of this area of Samaria, and uh, then you have about 35 miles north of that, you have this town called Caesarea, or the town of Caesar, Caesarea, it just means it's the town of Caesar. And so it's about 35 miles away. So in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. So a couple of things that we see about this uh, one who's Cornelius, he's a Roman officer. And uh, as a Roman officer, he's there in Caesarea, again, 35 miles to the north. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 
the first six verses, we'll underline a couple of things as we tell the story of Cornelius. So verse 1, it says, now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. And then I've underlined where it says, a devout man and one who feared God, I've underlined that, with all his household, and I've underlined that. And he gave many alms, I've underlined that, my translation says, to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually, and I've underlined that. Now about the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon of, of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being very much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Then he says, now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. So once again, these stories that are in the Bible, they're not just stories that tell you here's what happened, but they're there to convey a message. And so here's this man, Cornelius, and God wants to tell us a few things about this man that are very important for our understanding. And so a couple of observations as we get into this. First of all, you want to write this down. We find that this Cornelius is going to be a man of character. He's a Roman officer. He's of the Italian cohort. This would be a prominent military unit. Uh, he's a, an officer. He's overseeing people. The Romans would see him a, as a person that they could trust. And so this is going to be a man of character. So that's good. Another thing that we see about him is that he has a reverence for God. And so I put that little line there on your outline. It says he's a devout man and one who feared God. So he believes in the God of the Bible. He believes in the God that the Jewish people believe in, which would mean that he rejected the religions of the Romans. Romans believed in a number of gods. They practiced polytheism. So he's rejected that. He believes in one God, and he believes in the God of the Bible. Now, we, we don't know what he did as far as practicing. Maybe, maybe he kept their dietary laws. Um, maybe he kept the Sabbath. We don't know. But uh, certainly he would keep the moral law. But what we do know about this man is that he recognizes that there's something very unique about this particular God, the God of the Jewish people. We would say the God of the Bible. Another thing that God wants us to know is that this Cornelius is a generous man. You want to write that down. And you notice it says there, and I put verse 2 there on your outline, it says he gave many alms to the Jewish people. Many alms to the Jewish people. And then in verse 4, it's going to tell us that when the angel comes and appears to him, it says, it says, fixing his gaze on him and being very much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So this is something that God really noticed in his life, and that that's a good thing. Another thing that we notice is that he's a man of prayer. You want to write that down. A man of prayer. And there in verse 2 it says, he prayed to God continually. And what I find interesting is that in verse 3 it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God. Now, in very religious Jewish, um, very religious Jewish people, would practice setting, a time, setting aside time every day to spend time with God. Now keep in mind, he's not Jewish, he's a Roman. But he believes there's something very special about this God. And so the Jewish people, they would get up, they'd spend time in the morning with God, at lunchtime they'd spend time with God. 
And if you were really religious, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, they'd say, I'm going to set aside some time and I'm going to just spend that time with God. And so we notice that this man is doing that, spending time with God at three o'clock in the afternoon. Another thing that we notice and I appreciate about this man is that he points his family to God. Notice there in verse two, and I put it on your outline, it says he's one who feared God, but it says with all his household. You might want to underline that. That tells us that this man is living his life in such a way that when his family looks on and they see his life, they say, we want to believe what you believe. We want to be like you. So he's pointing his family towards this God that he's believed in or that he, that he recognizes that there's something very special. So, so far, God wants us to know, and he included the details, that this Cornelius is a, is a reverent man. He reverences God. He's generous. He's a man of prayer. He's a reputable, reputable man, at least his family, and the Romans see something inside of him. So this is a really good man. Would you agree with that? So far, he's a really good man. Now, we might look on in this society because in our society, there is this belief system that you know, um, you have your truth, I have my truth, I believe in this, you believe in that, your truth is as good as my truth. And, and some would say, you know, as, as long as you do the right thing, you're a good person, and this guy is certainly a good man doing all the good things, what else could there possibly be? And, and we would probably expect that God, as he looks down at Cornelius, and God's there talking with the angels, and he says, have you ever checked out Cornelius? He's a He's a great guy, I mean, a family guy, prays, he's generous, you know, a man of leadership, a man of character, he's just, just a really good guy. Let's don't add anything to that. But what we find is that here in this story, God sees something that's missing in Cornelius' life that he needs, so much so that God is going to send an angel to tell Cornelius where he can get what he ultimately needs. And so one of the things that we find is that although Cornelius is a really great guy, the truth is at this point Cornelius is lost. And you want to write that down. He's lost. You know, one of the things that we find in the Bible as we travel through, there's these statements. We saw Peter give a statement. But John, later on, John would say something like this. John says, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And at this point, Cornelius does not know Jesus. And so God looks down, he says, this is so important that I need to right now step into your life and make sure I point you in the right direction. So there's a couple of things that we learn in this. This angel shows up and tells him where to go. And uh, write this down. Now there's probably a better way to say this, but it rhymes, and so I went with it. So, so write this down. Uh, but what we find is that our seeking Savior never misses a seeking sinner. Never misses a seeking sinner. Now that's important because here you see this man is a good man, but something's missing. And so God is going to send an angel to him to tell him where he can go and find out about Jesus. Now that's important because if you're like me, have you ever heard anybody say, well, you say Jesus is the only way and you, know, you, need, to, you need to embrace him. Well, what about, what about that person who lives in that faraway land on that remote mountain in that remote hut who's never heard anything about Jesus? What about him? 
Well, well, here's what we find, is that if somebody is sincere wanting to find Jesus or find truth, God will even send an angel to point them in the right direction. He never misses. Do you find that interesting? Three of you did. Good. We're going to go with it and move on. All right. So verses five and six, I want to read that and then just notice something in there. Notice how specific the directions are. Now dispatch, the angel is speaking, now dispatch the men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. These are very, very specific directions. But what we notice that although the angel tells him where to go and get the right information, you want to write this down, the angel doesn't share the gospel with him. And the reason for that is that's our job to share the gospel. So might point him in the right direction, but it's always our job to share the gospel. So what does Cornelius do? Well, verse 7, it says, now when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout, I've underlined that word, devout soldier, of those who were of his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, this angel came in, I was praying, here's what he said, he sent them to Joppa, sends them to Joppa. So Uh, One of the soldiers is described as being a devout soldier, so at least one of the people that he's sending will have the same belief system that Cornelius has. Probably all of them have the same belief system, but at least one of them specifically does. We're going to skip over a large chunk here of chapter 10. We'll come back to that when we come to to our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study on Sunday morning. But uh, So just know a lot happens in this interim But the part that we need to know today is that the angel says, go find this guy named Peter. So the soldiers will go find Peter. They tell Peter, here's what's happened. Peter will now come back to Caesarea with the soldiers. He's going to come to the house. Cornelius has filled the house with as many people as he can find. They're all sitting there. They apparently have the same belief system as Cornelius. And they're waiting for Peter to show up and tell them what they need to know. Peter is going to give a very short sermon. And in that short sermon, uh, it's going to answer the question, what is it that Cornelius, who's a reverent guy, he's a praying guy, he's a generous guy, he's a good guy, what does this Cornelius still need to know what is the most important thing. So we're going to pick that up and look at that today. So we're going to pick it up in verse 34. Uh, again, Peter gives a very short sermon and a couple of things that, are, that he highlights. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Verse 35, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching Peace through Jesus Christ, and I've underlined that, but you want to make sure that you underline in your Bibles that He is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Now I put that verse there on your outline. I like it from the NIV. It says, God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and then you want to underline who is Lord of all. The way that you and I have peace with God is through what it is that Jesus has done. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But you notice Peter declares that this Jesus is Lord of all. Does everybody see that? 
Now, the first thing that Peter wants to establish, the thing you must know, and uh, you want to write this down, is that Jesus is God. When it says that he is Lord of all, that's his way of saying he is God. All Christians for 2,000 years have believed that Jesus is God, and everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. It's the dividing line of everything that is Christian and everything that is not Christian. Christians believe Jesus is God. Everyone else believes Jesus is not God. As Christians, we believe that 2,000 years ago, God came to the earth as a man. Jesus is God. He came to the earth as a man. And that's where our story picks up. That's the first thing that he needs to know. Now, verse 37 and 38, it says, you yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. Now, very very quickly, uh, this is 10 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. The word has spread about Jesus who had done some miracles. So they've all heard about it by this time. But what they haven't heard is that he's God and that he's their savior. So Peter is going to fill in the gaps. Now, verse 38, he says, now you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, and how he went about, and I've underlined in my Bible, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We're not going to talk about this today, but we will talk about it when we go through our chapter by chapter, verse by verse study on on a regular Sunday. But just we underline that Jesus went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil. There is a theme that goes all the way through the Gospels and all the way through the book of Acts. And it's simply this, that God never makes anyone sick. Jesus is the one who's always showing up and he's healing that which has happened to somebody else. Uh, that's going to be important for us uh, as we go forward uh, that, that God does not make anyone sick. So far so good? Now the reason that's so important because you will hear people say, well, you know, God sent this sickness upon me so I could really learn, you know, and, and experience him, and, and God's doing this great thing. Certainly God can use it, but he never sends it. So imagine me as a dad, if, if uh, you were to come over to my house today, and I have half a glass of water, and I fill up the other half with chlorine, and I'm stirring that, and you say, Dan, what are you going to do with that? I go, oh, this is going to be great. I, I'm going to give this to my kids and they're going to drink it, and then they're going to be like vomiting everywhere and have to go to the hospital. But it's in this, they're really going to experience how much I love them and how much I care about them, and they're going to draw really close to me. Would you say, wow, you are such an amazing dad, or would you get on the phone and call somebody? (laughs) Hopefully you get on the phone and call somebody because that would be child abuse. Now, it's important because you never find God or Jesus in the Gospels dropping sickness off because he thinks it's going to help somebody. He's always healing. The reason that's so important is that for many of us, we need to believe God for a healing. You can't believe God for a healing if at the same time, at the same time you think God's the one who did it to you in the first place. So the theme will always be in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, Jesus is the one who's undoing what he says the devil did. So don't, don't put that on God. So far so good? 
So Jesus is God, and then the next thing we find in verse 39, it says, and we are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and I've underlined they also put him to death by hanging by hanging him on a cross. So uh, you want to write down, the next thing that Peter wants them to know is that Jesus died on the cross. And I put it from the King James, just whom they slew and hanged on a tree. So God comes to the earth as a man, Jesus is God, and he steps into our place and he pays the price for everything we ever did, the punishment that would have come to us, he pays that price. But the reason that we celebrate Easter isn't because he died on the cross, the reason we celebrate Easter starts in verse 40. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all the people, but to the witnesses, to witnesses who, who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us. And you want to underline who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So the next thing that Peter wants us to know God, Jesus is God, he died on the cross, but then the next thing is that he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And Peter says he ate and drank with us after he was raised. And the reason that's so important is in that day, like today, people believed in ghosts. And uh, they would say, well, it was probably just a ghost. Well, ghosts in their minds did not eat or drink. So that was their way of saying it wasn't a ghost, it was really him. And that's the reason that we celebrate Easter. And this is what makes us different than every other religion. You see, we would hold that Jesus, God, came to the earth as a man. He died on the cross for our sins, and he was really dead. He was buried. But the way that he proved that he was God, and not just like any other religious leader, is that he was raised from the dead. You see, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then he'd be like just any other religious leader that you could go to their tomb, their grave, and there they are. But he's not there, he was raised from the dead. And that's the, 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 what, makes, what makes this unique. Uh, it's certainly the dividing line also. So verse 42, it says, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one whom has been appointed by God as, and I've underlined, judge of the living and the dead. Now we'll talk about this in our chapter by chapter study, but uh, very quickly, as God, Jesus is the ultimate judge. Ultimately, we're going to stand before him. Verse 43, he says, of him all the prophets, and I've underlined the word prophets, bear witness through his name that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So there's two things in verse 43. Very quickly says, of him all the prophets bear witness. Uh, When you go through the Old Testament, all of the books of the Old Testament point to this one who was going to come in the future. He would be the Christ, he'd be the Messiah, he would ultimately step into our place. He would pay the price for our sins. He would pay the, pave the way for us to have a relationship with God now and then through all eternity. And so he says it was all written in the Bible. So you want to write that down. It was all promised in the Bible. But the part that's, that's uh, very important for us today and we underline, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Peter makes the statement, and you want to write this down, when someone believes in Jesus, they receive forgiveness of sins. So Peter shows up to this crowd. They believe that Peter has the message that comes from God. So he begins to share. 
And so he says, Jesus is Lord of all. So they're all thinking, okay, Jesus is God. We get that. He's God. And then he says, now he died on the cross. He was hung on the tree. Okay, so he died on the cross for our sins. We get that. We've heard that. And so we believe that. He died on the cross for our sins. And then he says, and and then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And so, okay, we believe that. He was raised from the dead. We actually believe that. That's why he's different than all the other religious leaders, because you can go to their grave, but you can't go to his. And so we get that. He was raised from the dead. But as soon as Peter says, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, all of a sudden something happens and it's like whammo. Verse 44, notice what it says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, now for us that just means Jewish believers, uh, Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now when we come back to this in Acts chapter 10 in a few weeks, we'll cover all the amazing stuff that also happens in this chapter. And, and, and certainly some amazing things happen in the next few verses. But what hits us is that Peter's going through, this is what you need to know. Jesus is God. He died on the cross. Dead. Raised from the dead. Uh, when you believe in him, you receive forgiveness of sins. And all of a sudden, the light goes on inside of them. And as soon as the light goes on inside of them, it says the Holy Spirit fell on them. That is, they were saved at that point. Now, here, here's the part you need to get. Nobody prayed a prayer. Nobody went through a class. Nobody was confirmed. Uh, they just believed that message. And when they were believed, that's when the Holy Spirit was given and that's when they were saved. Now, in our context, typically what we do is we will pray a prayer, but we pray the prayer not to get saved because when you pray the prayer, the light has already gone on inside of you. And so the Bible also through the book of Acts is going to make it very clear that at the point that you believe, that's where you become his, that's where you become, as we would say, saved. So we're going to talk about that more when we come to it. But do you find that at least an interesting story today? Good, good. Well, here's a man who was reverent. He was a man of character. He prayed to God. And um, you know, he led his family to believe in this God. He lived his life in such a way, a great family. But there was something missing. And he needed to come to understand that Jesus was God. Jesus died on the cross for his sins. And it wasn't until that time that he accepted that. Uh, and it was at that point that he was saved. So my question today for us as we kind of wrap this up would be, is there that point in your life where maybe you're a good person like Cornelius, you've been reverent, you go to church, you know, you do good things, you're, you, know, you help people out, you give and all of those things, but you've never come to the place where you've acknowledged Jesus is God, he died on the cross for my sins, he was buried, he was raised, and I, when I believe in him, I receive forgiveness of sins. And if that's you today, today you've done that, I want you to know that you already now, because the light has gone on, you are now saved. But in a moment when we pray, I want to give you the opportunity 
not to pray to get saved so much, but to pray so that you can confirm that you really have come to that place and you really do believe that he is the one, that he's, the, that he's God, that he's died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised, and that by believing in him, you have forgiveness of sins. And so the invitation is the last verse on your outline today. And Jesus is speaking in the book of Revelation, and he's just speaking to people at large, people in the church, and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And in this case, it would be the door of your heart. And he says, if anyone hears my voice, if you've heard his voice today, and you open up, he says, and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. Now, we're not Middle Easterners 2,000 years ago when it says that, he says, I will come into him, and I will dine with him. In the Middle East then, and I'm sure today, you didn't eat with somebody that was your enemy. So when you ate with somebody, that was your way of saying, we're one, we're in fellowship, we're close, we're, 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 we're okay with each other. He says, when you open up, he says, I will step in. And he goes on to tell us in many other places that when he does that, he will never leave. And so I want to invite you today as we close in prayer, if you've seen that today, the lights come on, you want to pray that prayer to confirm that decision that that, that you've made today, then uh, you have your opportunity as we close in prayer today. So let's go ahead and close in, in, in prayer. Fathers, we come before you today. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the celebration. We thank you for even the celebrations that are going to take place today after we leave. Father, we, we, we thank you most of all that the celebration is that what you did 2,000 years ago. And because of that, we continue to celebrate. And so we look to you today and we say, I believe. I believe that Jesus is Lord of all. He's God. And I believe that God came to the earth and he stepped into my place and he paid the price for everything I ever did. And that you really died. And that you came back to life to prove that you were not like any other religious leader where we can go and see their grave. But you came back to life because you're God and you really could do it. And so today... We believe in you, and because of that, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for, like Cornelius, doing what you needed to do to bring us to the place where our eyes could be open, and we could see, and we could receive. And we thank you, God, for this eternal life that you've given to us, this relationship that you have for us. Father, I pray as we go forward today that we would live in that. And if you've made that decision today, the light went on, then make sure that you tell somebody today, whether it be a prayer partner, the person that you came with, somebody at the the welcome tent, but let somebody know that you made that decision today. The light went on. Father, I pray that as we go forward today, you would bless our celebration. I pray, God, that you would keep us until we meet again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out today.